How many of you enjoy jigsaw puzzles? I know, it's a torturous thing. You get a brand new one from the, the store and you throw it over on the top of the table. And uh, I appreciate those thousand piece jigsaw puzzles, you know, where they're about a postage stamp size. And, and uh, have you ever tried to put one together without looking at the, at the cover? No, you don't do that. You know, you don't do that because you realize that the, uh, that that you cannot make any sense. Now it isn't, I won't say it's impossible. You can get the edges and then you can fill in the edges as they go along and maybe sometime, preferably before the Lord comes to take us home, you might get close to finishing. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, it always helps if you have a picture of the, of the actual picture in front of you so that you could begin to understand and be able to know where these particular pieces go. We always put together a jigsaw puzzle when we keep the, the picture, the big picture, in front of us. So this morning, as we go into uh, the second chapter of 1 Timothy, I'm going to ask you the question, in order to understand the various parts of this particular book, we're going to have to understand its big picture. Does Timothy have a big picture? And we're going to see that it is, yes, Paul does not make any, if you want to open up, I don't know what it is in the Pew Bible, but if you would open it up uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be doing a little bit of introduction and then we're going to get into chapter 2. What page? 1845. Okay, Pew Bible, 1845. It says there in verse 3 in chapter 1, it says this, as I urged you when I, was, I went to Macedonia to stay there in Ephesus, and he's writing this to Timothy, who's being the interim pastor at this church, until maybe he's the full-time pastor, I don't know, but so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. And so Paul does not waste any time in being able to give the kind of the overview of what 1 Timothy is all about. He's saying very clearly that there's some uh, aberrations in thought and in aberrations in behavior that are beginning to bubble up in the congregation and they need to be uh, dealt with uh, uh, lovingly but firmly. And he says this, he said, uh, how do uh, you um, uh, recognize these things? Well, he, he goes on throughout the book and he talks about the various things that, uh, that he identifies <clears throat> and the first thing that he identifies is that people are misusing the law. They're saying that you could become holy by the law. And, and Paul is quick to point out that, hey, as a, as a former Pharisee, as somebody who was very, very, very articulate in and in the practice of the law, I'll tell you right now that the law does not make you holy. It just condemns you. The harder you try, the worse you get. The closer you think you are, the farther you actually are. And so the law is not intended uh, to be a, a vehicle of sanctification. But it is important to bring you to the point where you recognize your need for Jesus. And then there was also this, uh, this uh, asceticism that came in. Uh, we're not sure about some of these things. We're, we're, we're thinking maybe it was an intrusion of the, of the Greek uh, uh, emphasis on the fact that the body uh, needs to be subdued in order for it to be able to be uh, a, a less of a distraction in your pursuit of spiritual and mental uh, uh, pursuits. Uh, there was the other side of that coin that said that the body is of no good anyhow, so do whatever you want with it. 
And this is that Greek Gnosticism that had these two different flavors. We're not sure if it was uh, a Jewish flavor of asceticism, but we, we don't know where it was coming from, but there was this, uh, uh, this desire to abstain from uh, uh, different types of celebrations. There was this desire to abstain from marriage. Uh, so there was, a, uh, was an abstinence uh, thing coming uh, into the church. And throughout all of that, there was a lot of bickering, arguing, contentiousness, and division that was coming up. And so what Paul was observing is that when you allow these different thought patterns to have access to your, your head, when you allow these different behaviors to become prominent in the church, they serve absolutely no useful purpose in the ability of the church to do what God has called it to do. So what does Paul say? How do you counter these false doctrines? Well, my very first message was that you protect the flock from heresy by teaching the word. You are very strong at promoting what God says in his word. And so what Paul says, that the one way to counter false teaching is to proclaim the gospel. And in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 1, he says this. In verse 15, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so what, ladies and gentlemen, throughout the whole of this epistle, you will find Paul promoting the, 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 the teaching of the gospel as a way to be able to counter the things that are going on in the church. And he also, he also admonished him in, in, uh, in 3, 14 and 15. He says, I am writing to you these things so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there's a very, very intimate connection between thinking and doing. You see, there is a connection between the way that you think, the presuppositions that you assume, uh, the, uh, the way that you process information in the world. The way that you think has a bearing on the way that you behave, the way that you speak, and the way that you uh, uh, act in the world. There's very much a connection between the two. So if you're going through a particularly difficult time right now uh, and, you, and you have a very distorted view of God, you might come away with a very different understanding of your circumstances than if you had a view that God was good and sovereign and he's using these things to accomplish his glory and your good. You will say, well, Lord, uh, what I'm experiencing right now is not fun it is not pleasant. If I had my druthers, I'd much rather be removed. But that doesn't seem to be something that's taking place. But I'm going to be able to say to you that, God, I will stay here and I will endure this hardship because I know that it's from the hand of a sovereign, holy, good God. And, 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 and ultimately, this, well, I'll look back at this whole thing and I'll say, boy, oh boy, did I learn some lessons I could have never learned and while things were easy. And so, ladies and gentlemen, having a gospel-centered thinking structure helps us in terms of our behavior. So what Paul is saying is, preach the gospel and watch how behavior begins to modify itself in, in a way that God gives God glory and honor. And so he's very much interested in promoting the gospel, and he's very much interested in uh, teaching it in such a way that people can apply it. That's, that's paramount. See, for Paul, the gospel is not just about coming and saving faith. 
You see, the gospel is all about uh, have this attitude in Philippians chapter 1. Have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what attitude did he have? And then he goes on and talks about that he humbled himself, and he humbled himself uh, becoming a human being, but he even humbled himself to take on the cross. Have this attitude. Ladies and gentlemen, that attitude will infuse into your very behavior. Instead of becoming boisterous and pompous and saying, my way or the highway, you begin to say to yourself, it's not my way that's important, it's God's way that's important, and I need to be able to help my family, my wife, and my church to be able to accomplish those things in their lives. You see, that influences, the gospel influences how we behave. What does it say? Paul says this, husbands, love your wives. Not the way that you would love your wife, We'll get this, do that, whatever. But he says this, love your wives, what? As Christ loved the church and even gave himself up for the church. So in other words, loving your wife is not an issue of do it my way. The issue is really do it God's way. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel influences not just your coming to Christ, but how you grow in Christ. And this is what Paul is interested in. He's interested in the application of the proclaiming and the application of the gospel because it influences our thinking, our speaking, and our behaving. Now, he goes on through the gospel, his epistle here, and he talks about a number of situations, and he gives uh, Timothy counsel on how certain individuals and certain groups of people are to behave in the church. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, chapter 2, where he talks about the worship gathering of the church, but then he goes on and talks about uh, the nature and the behavior of elders and deacons in the church. He talks in chapter 5 about older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Chapter 5, again, he talks about widows. In chapter 6, he talks about slaves. He talks about the rich. And then finally, Paul spends a great deal of time talking about Timothy. Timothy, do this, don't do that, have a little of this, and don't worry about that, you know, and all those kinds of admonitions that he gives to Timothy in the epistle are designed to be advice for how the pastor's supposed to behave. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we have this epistle that's written by Paul to Timothy that's designed to weed out and root out false teaching by promoting the gospel and uh, being concerned about the conduct of different groups of people and individuals within the church. So if we have this big picture, would you kindly turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the fact that we're going to look at chapter, um, chapter 2. Now I have here, uh, I got it off of our website, and I am assuming that it is, it's current. Uh, it's the senior pastor job description. I don't know, he got his on a page and a half, or two pages. Well, this one's got something about Madison, so you can hardly count that as part of his job description. Well, only in the terms of evangelism, but it's, a, it's a, about Madison. So a page and a half. And he's got big font, big font, margin squeezed in. I don't know about, I, how did he get off so lucky? I had this job description with no description of Madison whatsoever. It's small, itsy-bitsy font. I think it was like, what, Fran, point eight or something like that? Wasn't that, wasn't that bad? <laughs> margins that went about within about an eighth of an inch from the edge of the paper, and it was two full pages. But anyhow, I compared that job description to this one. And you know what? It says uh, primary accountability. Primary accountability down at the bottom. 
The senior pastor shall coordinate or direct and be accountable for certain areas of ministry. As an elder, he will be mutually accountable to the Board of Elders. The primaries of ministry of responsibility are included. Number one, number one on his list, providing primary teaching, preaching of the Bible, and oversee the planning and implementation of the worship services. The number one responsibility that your senior pastor has is what goes on right here. Now, he will be blessed. He will be blessed to work with John. Because John takes that as his primary responsibility as the director for worship and music arts, is what he does right here is a major part of what he does, period. And he will be blessed, Pastor Nick will be blessed to have this comrade in arms working together to talk about what happens here on Sunday mornings. But ladies and gentlemen, let's not be mistaken. The primary responsibility will rest with him. His responsibility, his responsibility is to make sure that the word of God is proclaimed, that we sing God's word, that we pray God's word, that we preach God's word, and when we have the, set, the ordinances, that we see God's word. That is what is happening here on a Sunday morning. And that is what his primary responsibility is. So it is no wonder that Paul admonishes Timothy and he begins his instructions uh, with the worship service. This is how we are to conduct ourselves in the worship service. And then he says this, and let's read, read chapter uh, um, 2 uh, all the way through its conclusion. Now it's only 15 verses, so don't panic. It's not like a long chapter in Deuteronomy or something. I'm going to read Psalm 119. So uh, by next Sunday, we'd be finished. <laughs> I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all good godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. And I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women who will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now these verses have been uh, misunderstood. Uh, they've been uh, uh, acculturated in such a way that they're, they're palatable for our culture today. And so uh, what I would like to do this morning is just to spend some time trying to understand this passage for what it really says. And let the chips fall where they may in terms of what God has for men and women in the church. 
Then he says this. The first he begins with this. I urge then, and urge in Paul's, Paul's definition of urge is, I, I, I want, if, if, there's, if I could get down on my knees and beg you, I would want you to do this. I want this to make this your first of all priority. That when you offer your requests, a cry for help, when you offer your prayers, which is the general word uh, for prayer, when you offer your intercessions, uh, the uh, coming into God's presence boldly, but, but respectfully, recognizing that God is, a, uh, uh, is not your peer. And with thanksgiving, the original word that Paul uses in this term is the word that we use for our, our celebration of communion, Eucharista. And it's a remembrance of, it's a thanksgiving service. And so Paul wants uh, these men, whenever they come, uh, to come in and uh, to be able, first of all, with all these prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving, he wants them to be able to, uh, to pray uh, for uh, whom? Who does Paul want us to pray for? Well, he wants us to pray for everyone, but he specifically calls our attention to the fact that he wants you to pray for those in governance positions over you. These are people that are not in the church governance. These are people out there in the, in the, in the world's governance. He wants us to pray for President Obama. He wants to pray for our Congress, our senators, our House of Representatives, and our representatives. He wants us to pray for our state senate and whatever uh, other branches of government. He wants us to pray for our mayor. He wants us to pray for those in authority over us. Why does, he want Paul, why does Paul want us to pray for these people? All the way from the, 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 the man that is the kingpin all the way down to the, the lowly wannabes. He wants us to pray for these people. Why? so that we can live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Well, that seems like a very noble thing for us to pray for. We should be praying for this so that we can go on and, and have the, our church uh, worship services, our small group Bible studies. We can, uh, we can be free to uh, uh, express our faith in the public setting. Uh, he wants us to pray for all these things, but not just for us not just so that we can have a nice, quiet, peaceful existence. We have some friends of ours from our church in Canada that are on assignment in Thailand, in Bangkok. And with all the riots that are going on in Bangkok, they've had to call off church for two to three weeks because the rioting is all around the church compound. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Paul wants us to pray for our governmental leaders so that we can have peace and holiness and we can, we can practice uh, and, and exhibit our faith one to another. But that's not the only reason. Matter of fact, it is a subordinate reason. The ultimate reason that Paul wants us to be able to do this is that we can share and spread the gospel. He wants us to live and pray for our leaders so that the gospel can be shared and promoted in an unfettered, uncomplicated, unwatered-down manner in such a way that people come to know Jesus and accept him as their Savior and Lord. Look at what he says. He said, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Who wants what? Some men to come to Christ? All men to come to Christ, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And here's the gospel. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. 
the testimony given at its proper time. So what Paul wants is, he said, God wants all men to be saved, and the only way that we can promote this, the only way that we can share this, the only way that we can get this out is if we live in a land that promotes peace and quiet and gives us an opportunity to share it. The ultimate goal of our prayers is not so much for us, it's for the sake of presenting the gospel. So Paul wants all men to urge, and you can see why he uses four different words to represent this kind of prayer. That's how important it is. That's what he wants us to do. We should pray for those in authority so that we can have this kind of a sharing of the gospel. So when you gather for prayer and teaching and fellowship, this is how I want you to behave. This is how I want you to behave. When you come together to worship, this is how I want you to behave. I want men in every place. Now, it, it could be that in those times they had different uh, house churches uh, where they gathered in courtyards and they had places. Uh, the, the church in Ephesus might have been meeting on Sunday in a variety of places uh, that everywhere should be uh, translated in every place. I want in every place, lifting up of holy hands. Uh, when you have, how many of you have had young children? And these young children come to you and they're looking for something, especially a small toddler that wants to be picked up. What do they do? They raise their hands. They want something, don't they? And this is a symbol that we want something from God. So that when we pray, if we pray with such fervent desire to see God's will accomplished, uh, we, our requests and our, our intercessions and our, our thanksgivings and our prayers, if we want all these things, we say, God, please give it to me. Oh, not that piece of cherry pie. But give me, give me somebody to save. Give me somebody to present the gospel to. Lord, it is my passion to share the, my faith. You've been blessed me. I need, I, please, I want you to lift up in every place holy hands. And here's the hint of where the first level of disruption takes place. Without anger or disputing. Now, when I was listening to Don Carson talk about this particular passage, he mentioned this preacherfied prayer. Preacherfied prayer. You've all heard it. It's prayer when there's divisions and conflicts in the church. It's opportunity for somebody to come to the prayer meeting and say this, Oh Lord, I come to you humbly, that's my point, humbly, and I pray that you would, by your justice and your wrath, root out sin in our fellowship. Which happens to be Brother Rufus sitting over on the other side of the room. Brother Rufus hears this prayer. And you know what Brother Rufus does? Watch. You ever see it? Watch, I'll do it again. He's praying there with his head down, and he come, head pops up, his eyes roll back, and then he goes down again. And Brother Rufus prays a preacherfied prayer. Amen to whatever brother said, I pray that you would get rid of all sin in this fellowship. That's what I call, and what Don Carson calls, preacherfied prayer. It's the kind of prayer that comes out of a man's mouth when there's conflict and there's, uh, there's disputes 
uh, ideas and theologies are going back and forth, and you get this kind of a prayer that says, I'm not going to pray a request to God. I'm going to pray that God is listening, and I really want to pray to him. And he wants to pray to me. And boy, I'll tell you, I'll let, uh, you know, I'll let God sort it all out. Well, my foot. You see, that's the kind of a prayer that Paul does not want in a fellowship. He wants us to pray, but he wants us to pray for the, the, the advance of God's kingdom. And then he says, likewise for women. Now, some people have said that, well, he picked on men, now he's got to pick on the women. That's not true. Paul is addressing particular concerns that occurred in the fellowship, and he's telling, uh, telling Timothy how to address them. He said, women, don't cause attention to come your way by your dress. Dress modestly and with propriety, but if anybody's going to call attention to you, let it be because of your good deeds done in worship. That's what ought to draw attention to yourself. I, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a big CSI fan. I watch CSI, um, CSI Miami, CSI New York, uh, NCIS, and I watch all these different programs. And I, I, I've, I've grown not to like CSI New York. And I'll tell you why. I don't know how anybody in that office can get anything done with the way that those women wear their clothes. I know, they're supposed to be looking at a fine-tooth comb with evidence, and I, and listen, guys, I'm, I wear, I put my pants on two legs at a time, just like you. <laughs> Is that the way we do it, guys? <laughs> no. Maybe that's why I had hip surgery. Um, <laughs> but ladies, ladies and gentlemen, good friends, listen. If I were working in that office, I'd have to have the biggest pair of blinkers in, in the history of horse racing put around my head so that I could focus on what it was, I was doing. I don't, I don't understand how people could work in an environment like that. And can you imagine, can you imagine that kind of a cultural influence walking into the church on Sunday morning? Can you imagine the distraction that it would be to have a, 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 a group of women flaunting themselves by the way they dress. I, I'd, have, I'd have to say, let's rope that section off, put them all over there so I don't have to look over there. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not how we dress that's important. We ought to dress with propriety and with decency, a, a layer of clothing that is appropriate for the, uh, for the, uh, for the function that we're going to. But it ought not to be a distraction to the worship service. And that's what Paul is saying is happening, that the culture is beginning to influence women and their self-esteem is being tied with where they look and they're coming to church dressed like that. And he said, that's not the thing that you ought to take, uh, take uh, 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 pride in. You ought to take pride in the fact that you're worshiping God through your good deeds. And so this is not just simply, well, I chastise the men, I need to chastise the women. He's also saying something that was also occurring in the church. And then he addresses something that was also occurring in the church. It said, women, when you are learning. Now you have to understand that in the early church, to have women 
learning at the feet of the apostles was a major revision in the culture. This was not something. It was beginning to bubble up in Rome, but it was nowhere near where it was in Ephesus and certainly further uh, east than that. It was much more conservative. Women had a very diminutive role in society. They were responsible for taking care of the children, and that was it. And in the wealthier homes, they had nannies. And so, ladies and gentlemen, to have, and Paul is not saying that they shouldn't be learning, but he says, when you are learning, do so in quietness. Now, I like the NIV's translation of this because the same word is used a little further down when it talks about be silent. He could have said there, women, when you are learning, do so in silence. But the NIV doesn't take that flavor. The NIV says this, that when you are learning, do so quietly in a peaceful manner without criticism nor dispute. That's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. It doesn't, we, we want women to learn. We want them to ask a question. We want them to learn and be engaged in the process. But we want them to do it quietly, peacefully, and what? In full submission. Now, this is a nasty word in our culture, but what it really means is that when the church has affirmed and appointed elders who are responsible for teaching the Word of God, that women are not supposed to be there bickering and arguing with the man. They're supposed to learn in quietness. It doesn't mean that they don't have questions. They can ask questions. They can ask questions there, or they can ask questions back at home. But you don't argue. You don't dispute with the man because it gives a signal that you are not respecting their calling of being able to teach God's Word. That was a particular problem with this particular church. And so he says, women, I want you to learn, but I want you to learn in quietness, and I want you to learn on full submission. Now listen, ladies and gentlemen, here's a quote from a, a commentary by Doug Moo, and I, I had to put this in here because I think it does reflect the church's attitude towards women at large. Women are, are, have, have been gifted with spiritual gifts, the same as men. Uh, they are, uh, those gifts are intended to be used uh, for the ministry of the body, and it's indispensable to the life and the growth of the church. Let's be honest, ladies and gentlemen. We have, I mean, Rebecca Schmidt with the work that she does with the communications and the, and the, and the website, wonderful stuff. Jane, uh, uh, Jean um, Collins is our, our, our right-hand person to, to, to Jeff Barquar, and she gets assistance with Kathy Musilar. Our excellent children's program is run by Kathy, uh, Kathleen Schrader. Wonderful job. And last year in my annual report, I entitled, I entitled Katrina Boyd's position as the Senior Pastor Crash and Prevention Burn Program. <laughs> you don't know how she stabilizes the office and gives some, gives some order and, and regime to it all in a very gracious manner. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we would be lost in ministry if it wasn't for women. We approve and affirm and welcome them in ministry. But Paul seems to say here that it's not an open-door ministry. It's not open to everything that goes on in the church. Because he says this, I do not permit a woman. Now it says permit, and many of the, many of the commentaries that uh, talk about uh, this particular passage say that permit is a verb of concession. 
For example, if I were to say to my child when we went to, uh, uh, we went to a hometown buffet, uh, um, uh, I'll, I permit you to have dessert. But what does that mean? That means it leaves the choice up to the child, doesn't it? It means I permit you to do this. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, it is not a command in the positive, it is a command in the negative. It says this, if my, my kid raised his hand and said, Dad, can I have dessert? And I say to him, I do not permit you to have dessert. Well, is that the same sense or the same tone as it was if we, if we, we leave the negative out? You see, ladies and gentlemen, I do not permit is perceived to be the same as a command. I do not permit. I do not want. I do not endorse this to happen. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. Now, the word authority here has been used three times in the New Testament, and it's a, it's a relatively new word to Paul's vocabulary. Uh, a lot of words are new to Paul's vocabulary in the, in the epistle to Timothy. Uh, it's authentine, and it means, generally speaking, to have authority over, which is what the, 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 new NIV, the NIV has said. But it also has words like have dominion over. And uh, in some capacities, it means to lord over. But in no, no usage of this in the, in the New Testament do we find it to indicate that it was a negative connotation. It is not a negative connotation. It is to have authority. It means to be able to have a, a, a position of responsibility that gives you the authority to be able to make certain decisions. And so the authority here is not perceived in the negative. And so when people, people argue that says, well, it really means to, that women are not supposed to teach or to be acting in an authoritarian manner. Well, that would be the negative implication of the word uh, authority, and that's not what's implied here in the passage. The passage is that it would be a positive. And the reason we can say that is because of the way that they use the word or when it's in, uh, in between two infinitives. There are 300 examples of infinitives that are divided by uh, of the word nor or or. In all 300 examples in the New Testament, not one of them, not one of them is used to divide a positive and a negative. Not one of them. It's either going to be both are negative or both are positive. And in this case, there's no doubt whatsoever that the verb to teach is considered to be a positive infinitive. And so therefore, we have every evidence to believe that this is a, something that is to have authority as a positive thing. Do they go together? Can a woman teach but not be involved in the exercise of authority? Well, that would be okay if it wasn't for the fact that in the very next chapter, what is the one, what is the one only skill that an overseer is supposed to have in order to be qualified to be an overseer? What's the one skill? Able to teach. Able to teach. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when you set up a criteria for elders, overseers, pastors, that includes teaching as a mandatory requirement, then you are not separating teaching from authority. You are bringing those two things together in the passage. And so what Paul says this, he says, I do not permit, I do not permit, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over men. Does that mean that they're not to have authority, period? No, that's not true. 
There's all sorts of admonitions in the Scripture for what women are able to do with older women to younger women. There's admonitions for uh, how younger women are to raise their children and to have authority in the home. There's all sorts of, uh, uh, he thanks, he, uh, if it wasn't for the fact that Timothy had a, a godly mother and a grandmother, Timothy wouldn't be where he was at right now. They must have done some teaching. And certainly he always associates Aquila with Priscilla. As a matter of fact, I think if I, would, uh, if I were to look at the scriptures, it's Priscilla that gets the weight in the relationship. So Paul doesn't say that they don't have some role in teaching. That's not to say that they don't have some role in authority. But he says in this particular environment, at the worship service of the church, I do not permit a woman to stand up and exposit God's word and have authority, to speak it authoritatively in a mixed audience. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And he gives two reasons for it. Now these are often very misunderstood reasons. Adam was formed first, then Eve. One of the uh, comments that Don Carson made in this, uh, this tape was that he said that one of the, com uh, the criticisms that he gets about this was, yeah, Adam was created first and Eve next, but God created pigs before them. So what advantage is it that they be, uh, be first? You see, there's, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's an, a, a way to number something and, and to make it a temporal thing and there's a, a way to order it in, the, in a primal sense. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Paul is, I think, summarizing very accurately what happened in Genesis 2. That God created Adam, and Adam was given headship over all the creation. But Adam says, gee, everybody else has got a partner, why can't I? And so God said, well, you know, you've got a point there. And so he met Adam into a sleep, pulled out a rib, and he said, not from your feet that you should walk all over, not that your head, that she should rule over you from your side so that she should be your helpmate. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not the fact that Adam was created first just simply because God flipped a coin and said, I'll, oh, it's a man, I'll create him first. You see, God ordained it to be a headship position. And every time that Paul appeals to the creation order, he appeals to it not so much that men were created first and should be given the first honor, that men were created first because they are given the responsibility of headship. And so therefore, he's saying this. Adam was formed first, then Eve, that it's his responsibility to be the head of the home. It's his responsibility to be the head of the church. And you know what? I was telling Karen on the way home from our trip to, to Chicago, I was saying, you know, in a marriage, in a marriage where a husband takes seriously what God has told him to do about loving his wife, that if a husband takes seriously that he's going to die for his wife even as Christ died for the church, and if a woman takes seriously the fact that just as the bride of Christ is submit to the head of, uh, which is Christ, the bride of Christ is the church, and they submit under the lordship of Jesus Christ, just as a wife would then do that with her husband. You know what? When a wife gives that gift to her husband, and when a husband le loves leadingly, you know what, ladies and gentlemen? It is seamless in the relationship. It is seamless. There is not one hint of lording over or bucking. It's seamless. 
And when a church has men who are leading and teaching in God's word, serving the congregation, shepherding the congregation, leading them out into the, the community to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when a church has that, ladies and gentlemen, the followership is seamless. There isn't any contention. But you know, when we fall down up here, there's women and men that sit in the pew and say, Pastor, lead, follow, or get out of the way. And that's when these issues become contentious. That's when we go to the bylaws and say, it says in 1 Timothy 2, you're not to do this. Well, all she says is, then you do it. Somebody's got to do it. And if you're not going to do it, get out of the way. Let me do it. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, when, when pastors and elders lead and serve the church like Christ led and served the church, the followership is seamless. Seamless. Do you realize what the last four congregational meetings have been like in our church? Do you realize that? They are wonderful. It's not like we just rubber stamp. There's engagement, there's questions, there's an involvement and interaction. But it's done in an atmosphere of love and trust. And the elders are better off for asking, and you are, the church is better off for you saying. It's seamless. Only when there's a problem does it raise its ugly head. And it's this, Ave was deceived. Now, it doesn't mean that Eve was more morally inferior. It doesn't mean that Eve was less in discernment. It means that Eve was deceived in the attempt to try and usurp Adam's responsibility and take it upon himself. There was a role reversal in the garden, wasn't there? Eve taught Adam, and Adam listened. And you see... Paul is pointing to that very, very dynamic interaction that says that that was wrong. It doesn't mean that she was duped. Oh, yes, I, oh, why did I do that? You tricked me, you silly snake. That wasn't what happened. Eve was fully aware of it, and Adam just simply took it. And then what happened? They felt shame. Did they feel shame after Eve ate? They felt shame after who ate? Adam ate. Because he, the buck stopped at him. You see, those are the two reasons. Now, I don't know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm surmising, but Paul doesn't say why that was. He just says simply that Adam was formed first and Eve was deceived. That's all he got. Put it on your to-do list when you get to heaven. What did you mean by that? Uh, there's a couple of passages of the scriptures. We're going to come to the last one here. There's a couple of passages that I want to know what God had particularly in mind when he asked the, the apostle to write this. So these are local situations that are requiring a transcultural fix. I believe that if this had happened in any other church, Regardless of whatever situations occurred, Paul would have come up with the same conclusion. He did it in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talked about women wearing hats, etc., etc., or not covering their heads. He appealed to the fact that it was, uh, they were, they were, a man was a headship. 
Now, there's a lot of things that a woman can do uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to recognize her submission to her husband without necessarily putting something on her head. And so, ladies and gentlemen, culturally, we can do certain things to acknowledge that, we've, that we're, uh, the Mennonites have a way of doing it that whenever a husband came in, the wife would follow. I don't, I don't particularly agree with it, but it certainly does ref, reflect the fact that they, they uh, have a certain attitude of submission. But there's lots of ways that a woman can show her, her submission to her husband. But then again, the husband would want to say, oh, no, dear, you go. I want to I serve you. I wanna. No, she says, no, I have to submit to you. You go first. I said, oh, no. They'd never get into church if somebody didn't get in the door. <laughs> they just stuck out. We'd have a traffic jam at the door over there as husbands want to let their wives go first, and their wives would say, no, no, you go first. Somebody has to lead. Somebody has to hold the door to let their wife go in first. But she will be saved through childbirth. Now, I don't have an answer for this one. I'm giving you my three best guesstimates. Number one, it's a reference to Christ being born through Mary. And I thought to myself, man, there's got to be a simpler way you could have said that than that. I don't understand how you could... I can see it in some kind of a twisted, you know, if I had a flashlight looking down a hallway and the hallway took a bend, I could see if my light took a bend, I could see how that happened. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think uh, my, my personal preference is number two. It's a reference to, since he was just talking about Eve, he's talking about the seed that will come from Eve that would talk about uh, the crushing the serpent's head, which ultimately is a reference to Christ. And then thirdly, up until maybe 25 to 30 years ago, uh, that would have been a very natural way for a woman to work out her salvation would be to be a mother in the home. And this swims upstream for us because in the last 30 years we've had uh, women's lib and emancipation, and I'm not, I'm not making a comment on that, but you know, up until maybe 1955, this comment would have rung very true for a lot of women as they stay at home and raise their kids. And they found that to be a very noble task. And so lately it's just become a, 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 a real pinch for us to think that, well, i gotta, I got to stay at home. Well, the Proverbs 31 woman seemed to have a, quite an enterprise either in her home or at a shop, and she got praised. So my personal preference would be two, but I've, it, it's, it's baptism of the dead in 1 Corinthians, and this one... And, you know, that thing that's in 1 Peter where God goes, Christ goes down and redeems the same, goes down and that's another passage I want to ask God about because they're not, just not altogether clear in my head about which one it is. Now, how does this apply in the church? Ladies and gentlemen, he is specifically talking about this particular service. Ladies and gentlemen, where in this room is the authority you have to understand, ladies and gentlemen, I have no authority just because you call me Pastor Bill. My authority comes from being able to proclaim God's word to you in such a way that the Holy Spirit can use it to change your lives. That's my authority. And it's in this room right here where that takes place. Right here. The pulpit is the 21st century symbol of authority. It takes place in other contexts. 
It takes place with other people, and I will leave Pastor Nick and the elders to ferret out exactly what that means in this church in the future. But all I can say definitively, and I will not apologize for it, is that this right now is where Paul is talking about in the church. I do not want, I do not permit women to teach and have authority over men in the public worship service of the church. Plain and simple. That may not sit well, but you know what? That's the same God that said to me that God so loved the world that he, he gave us Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, so that whomsoever believeth could have eternal life. That's the same God that said to me, therefore you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. That's the same God that said to me, nothing but nothing shall ever separate you from the love of God. That's the same God that said those things. That's the same God that wrote this. We might not like it, but it comes from a God who is good, and he will be sovereign, and his will be done. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity that it speaks to us. I thank you for the ability to communicate it. And I pray, Lord, that I have done so faithfully and truthfully as I have adhered to the truths contained in the scriptures. Gracious Father, uh, you are the Lord of the church. Jesus Christ died for the church. Father, we pray that we would be the kind of church that gives you glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.